Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the downside of multi-screening, and on the eve of this year's Basketball Final Four, a preview of next year's NCAA wrestling tournament in Minneapolis. But first, the state legislature took some big steps toward tackling a couple major issues at the state capitol this week. First, the House, in a bipartisan vote, approved a measure requiring drivers to use only hands-free devices when talking on the phone. Sponsor Representative Frank Hornstein says statistics show the measure would improve safety. We know this bill saves lives. In the 16 other states and District of Columbia where this bill has been enacted, there's been an average of a 16% drop in fatalities. Speaker of the House Melissa Hortman echoed that sentiment. Minnesotans deserve to be safe on our roadways. And with distracted driving crashes and fatalities on the rise, it's time for us to pass a hands-free bill. There's clear evidence from other states that these types of laws save lives. Several family members who lost loved ones to distracted driving shared their stories this week with lawmakers, including Karen Ilg of New Prague. My husband, Philip Ilg, was killed by a 16-year-old who focused in on the device more than the right to be on the road. And that's what it is. It's not even a right, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be on the road. And she did not take that seriously. He was struck by behind. His skull was uh, shattered. Um, Minnesota Highway Patrol asked me not to see him. I was one who did not see my husband. Um, So now my family, my friends, and his family and his friends go through grief, anguish, sadness, and now forgiveness in order to make sure that this does not happen again. This is his bike that he was uh, riding. Um, I decided it was better not to just put it into a garage. Um, No museum piece is needed for this. What I've been doing is I've actually been cutting up his bike And for any and every 16-year-old, of which I have one, a 16-year-old on the roads today, I am trying to give one of these to them as a reminder not to text and drive. John Dudley's son Andrew was killed by a distracted driver. April 25th, 2012, I got the phone call at 8.40 in the evening that no parent wants to get. He was five weeks from graduating high school at St. Louis Park, and... I've been doing what I can to bring awareness to this because, you know, my background is manufacturing, which safety is a big issue when you're on a production floor. And since 1976, I've had a commercial license and in between jobs and manufacturing, I've driven school bus. And with the increase in population in the Twin Cities and the more aggressive driving, and then now with the advent of this thing, it's become a selfish entitlement mentality that I can do, I can text and talk on the phone and I can drive at the same time. No, I wrote an article about doing just that. If you look up the Smith system and you follow all the bullet points there on the internet, you can't, it's impossible to keep your mind on the road and do what you need to to drive full time. Um, And and when I would uh, give a PowerPoint presentation for Minnesotans for Safe Driving at their impact groups, 
I would end my presentation with talking to the parents of new student drivers and people who are court-ordered to be there. So you go home, you hug your kids often, and you tell them how much you love them because I can't do that with Andrew anymore. And V.J. Dixit, who has been an outspoken advocate for distracted driving laws since his daughter was killed in a crash in 2007, had this message for lawmakers. Please, please wake up. It happens to anyone. Happened to me, happened to many of my friends, and it happened to you if you don't take any action. The hands-free bill passed overwhelmingly in the House on a 106 to 21 vote. The measure still needs a vote in the Senate where a similar bill is under consideration. The House also this week passed a bill to combat the opioid epidemic in Minnesota. In 2017, there were more than 2,000 visits to emergency rooms in the state for opioid-involved overdoses. We're saying today that there's hope in prevention, treatment, and recovery, and this bill contains strategies to do those things. Minnesotans truly can't wait any longer for leaders in this state to take meaningful action. Democratic Representative Liz Olson from Duluth authored the bill along with Republican Representative Dave Baker of Wilmer. He lost his son to an opioid overdose. House Minority Leader Kurt Doubt argued that the bill was flawed. I want to vote for this bill. I want to help people. But unfortunately, this bill does not help anyone. And don't think for a second you can go back to your district and tell anyone that you've helped someone with with opioid addiction. But House Majority Leader Ryan Winkler countered, This bill provides relief, it provides hope, it provides support for the Minnesotans who are damaged by opioids. And this bill includes payment from the people who profited from that damage. The bill would create an advisory council to make recommendations on ways to end the crisis, and it puts a fee on pharmaceutical companies. The bill passed on a 94-43 to vote in the Democrat-led House. And in just a moment, I'll be joined by MNN's Bill Werner with a recap of some of the other top issues at the state capitol this week. That, when Minnesota Matters, returns. Don't you wish that getting your child to eat right, move more, and spend less time in front of a screen could be as easy as pushing a button? It might not be that simple, but you do have more power than you know. And you can maximize that power with proven strategies, tips, and tools from the National Institutes of Health's We Can, or Ways to Enhance Children's Activity and Nutrition program. We Can offers all kinds of resources, including fun recipes and activities the family can do together to show you the way to live a healthier lifestyle. We're not saying it's easy. We are saying that it can be done. Take the first step today. Call 1-866-359-3226 for a free We Can Parents Handbook. And be sure to visit the We Can website at wecan.nhlbi.nih.gov for free information, too. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. In addition to this week's developments on opioids and hand-free cell phone use, lawmakers wrangled with a number of other significant issues, and MNN's Bill Werner has a recap. Scott, the Minnesota Senate, on a strong vote this week, approved $13 million to reimburse deputy registrars for losses caused by ongoing problems with the state's vehicle registration and licensing system, or MINLARS. Registrars are not required to provide documentation of losses, however, which raised some eyebrows at the Capitol. Minneapolis Democrat Scott Dibble have the deputy registrars demonstrated in any sort of a tangible fashion documented 
um, their damages, their claims that rise to the level of $13 million. Backers of the bill say the dollar figure was agreed on with stakeholders. Faribault Republican John Jasinski. I believe this is the simplest method to get money back to our deputy registers before they have to shut the doors. Dibble says Governor Tim Walz has concerns about language in the bill that might require the state to defend deputy registrars if they're sued. There's concern that, you know, in fact, uh, lawsuits may be brought forward for which the state and the agency are on the hook um, that that may not have to do with with Minlars. Jasinski responds his bill is a work in progress. Deputy registrars are also asking for increases in transaction fees. Jasinski indicates that issue is also still open for discussion. The Minnesota House this week approved legislation that says school districts do not have to make up three snow days that many districts took during January's polar vortex. Democrat Shelley Christensen. We're just trying to make things whole, provide clarity for families, clarity for school districts, and to just uh, get it done as quickly as we can and move forward so that the calendar can be set and families and districts know where to go from here. The House and Senate now have to try to hammer out a compromise because the bill the Senate passed is significantly different and that it's open-ended on how many snow days districts can take this year without making them up. Rochester Republican Carla Nelson says Some schools have had 10 school closure days because of snow and three days because of the roof collapse that followed the snow and now we could have flooding. Some worry students could lose too many classroom days under the Senate's plan, but Nelson contends no school board will artificially shorten its calendar. There is no school district that does not want to have its kids in school every day. It is feasibly and safely possible. Nelson says she's hoping for quick agreement between the House and Senate so that a bill can be sent to the governor. Long and heated debate this week as Republicans in the Minnesota House tried again, without success, to move forward with state-paid health care reinsurance to hold down premiums. Minority Leader Kurt Dowd said under the governor's plan, only people who buy health insurance through Minsure get a 20% reduction. Other people who buy their insurance in the individual marketplace will get screwed. That's what happens under the governor's plan. Rochester Democrat Tina Liebling responded, some Minnesotans paid higher premiums under Republicans' reinsurance program. It is a verifiable fact. And you can yell that it's not true. You can get really mad about the fact. You can go on and on and keep repeating yourself over and over. It is still a fact. Doubt fired back. Reinsurance has held down health insurance premiums for two years in a row while he says Governor Walz's plan... Increase rates 50% and then lower them 20%. That sound like a winning equation for Minnesotans? Because that's the governor's plan. Walls responded implementing reinsurance again like Republicans want. This is a stopgap plan that sends hundreds of millions of dollars to insurance companies. Uh, we're trying to be more targeted and move beyond this. They don't seem interested in listening on that. The governor is proposing direct rebates to some Minnesotans and expanded tax credits for health care premiums. He wants all Minnesotans, regardless of income, to be able to purchase health coverage through state-run Minnesota care. And observers this week saw cracks forming in pledges for bipartisan cooperation. 
as Governor Tim Walz ratcheted up criticism of Republicans, particularly about their opposition to a gas tax increase. Overwhelming wins in the House to have a historic vote number for the governor and to watch a whole bunch of people who weren't up for election in the Senate say no to everything. That's not the way it works. That is not the way it works. The governor at a state capitol rally of Service Employees International Union members earlier that same day to highlight his push for a gas tax increase, Walls visited a dangerous rail crossing in Anoka, pointing to 18,000 vehicles and up to 80 trains a day, major crashes dating back to 1972. If there was a way to do this without having a dependable stream of funding to fix these projects, it would have been done in 1972. It has not been done. Republican Senator Jim Abler, who represents that area, said he appreciates the governor's visit and concern, but he says solving the problem will not require increasing the gas tax, sales tax, or tab fees. The governor fired back. We'll leave the podium up here. He can come and stand in front of people and tell them how he's going to get this done. Because for 50 years, they've not told you that. Wall says everyone agrees Minnesota's roads and bridges must be fixed, but he says Republican senators don't want to pay for it. Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka responded about a gas tax increase. We don't think we need to do that. We don't think we need more additional taxes. Uh, we've showed that we can fund roads and bridges in the last two years uh, in a way without raising taxes. Gazelka referring to a tax on auto parts and a half a billion dollars in bonding that would go toward road fixes. Governor Walls responded. They're basically in a no-new tax pledge, even if the no-new tax pledge costs us more money, costs us unsafer roads. The governor asking Minnesotans to let him him know where the worst potholes are at hashtag MN potholes. Mayors from across Minnesota did better than virtual reporting. They hauled actual chunks of asphalt from local potholes into the state capitol this week, asking lawmakers for more money to maintain their local streets. Oak Park Heights Mayor Mary McCumber. This morning I went out trying to pick up a piece of asphalt like everybody else brought. Unfortunately, the smallest one I could find, um, I would have needed a dolly to bring it in. And Ely City Council member Heidi Omerza says when her son had to be driven to Duluth for an emergency appendectomy, they had pothole problems. Bumps, any little bump makes it even worse. We had to stop and take an hour rest at the emergency room in Virginia. Well, Scott, it looks like during this legislative session, as in many before it, road and bridge funding will be a major point of contention between Republicans and Democrats. Indeed it does, Bill, and we're going to take a little detour here before Minnesota Matters returns. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A new report shows that many of us are multi-screeners. MNN's Tasha Radel explains what that means. I don't know about you, Scott, but I'm a multi-screener, so you're probably wondering, what exactly is this? Multi-screening is a behavior of looking at another screen while watching TV. Claire Sahine is an assistant professor of advertising in the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communications. She recently conducted a study on multi-screening and how it impacts advertising, among other things. Claire, can you give us a little more background on multi-screening? We see that a lot of people are multi-screening nowadays, and it's not just with television and smartphones, it's also with television and laptops or television and tablets, so different devices are used. And it's not just two devices anymore either. It's like uh, more and more people, especially the younger generations, are using multiple devices, like on average three devices at the same time. Uh, So television, laptop, and smartphone. 
Um, we find that uh, many people are multi-screening, and it's not just for the younger generation. It's actually, we in our in our study, we also find someone from 81 years old who is multi-screening. Um, it's just that the younger generation is doing it uh, for a longer period of time. Like they, like when they're doing it, it's just longer than uh, compared to. Um, older generations, and they are most, mostly using smartphones to multi-screen, whereas other people may use laptops or tablets to multi-screen. Um, so we did a study into multi-screening. I also did a study into eye-tracking to see how people divide their attention between screens. And in that study, we find that people switch on average two and a half times per minute between the television and a mobile device. Uh, so they switch a lot of their attention between uh, screens, and we also find that people, uh, like half of the time that they fixated on one screen, it's only 10 seconds or shorter, right? So sometimes they focus for a longer period of time, but like half of the, the time that they are looking at one of the two screens, it's like 10 seconds or shorter. So people have like short attention spans towards media, and then we also looked at effects, right? So how does this allocation of attention affect memory, uh, both of the editorial content, so the television show, uh, what do people remember, uh, do people remember brands of the commercial breaks, and also we looked into attitudes. So how does like multi-screening influences how people feel about brands? Are they more or less positive about brands or about um, advertising messages? And that's what I was going to ask you. Um, you know, when you look at the advertising portion of this, uh, I mean, are we being distracted by this? I mean, is it sticking with the consumer's brain, so to speak? Right. So um, when we look at uh, into memory, so what do people remember? How many brands do people remember? Uh, the, the results are very consistent. Uh, people cannot multitask. They cannot remember. And it's not just the advertising content. It's also other content of... Um, media content, uh, like the editorial content. So people are less able to remember things uh, when they're multi-screening. However, when we look at uh, brand attitude, or like attitudes or advertising attitude, we, we do not see uh, this consistent um, picture. We actually see that it's sometimes it's possible that people are becoming more positive about certain brands or messages. Um, and the reason is, is that when you're multi-screening, uh, you're less able to resist a persuasive message. Like where, when you have like your full attention towards the screen, um, you have the ability to counter-argue. So you can think of arguments uh, why you should not buy the brand or why you do not agree with the persuasive message or you think the price is too high or you can, up, can come up with all sorts of arguments to counter-argue the, the persuasive message, the, the advertising message. Uh, but when you're multi-screening, you're less able to do this because your your cognitive capacities are occupied uh, because you already have to divide them between screens. And we only have, like, a limited amount of these cognitive capacities as human beings. They, they are not endless. So when we're already dividing them, we're less able to resist a persuasive message. So even though we're, we're focusing on our, our mobile device, on our smartphone or laptop or tablet, the ads on the television screen are still on in the background, and especially when they have like uh, their main message or the brand uh, in audio, we can still process that information. Although we're looking at 
our, our mobile device. And because we cannot resist the persuasive message, we can actually have more positive uh, brand and advertising attitudes. So it's kind of like if you're if I'm sitting there, let's say on my laptop and I'm watching a television show and um, hypothetically speaking, there was a Heinz ketchup commercial. I may not watch it, but I, I hear Heinz and then I just don't have enough time to process the message. But the, the Heinz is still stuck in my head. Is that fair to say? Um, it's not the time. It's just that you, you do not. Uh, it's more like on an unconscious level. So you do not really have the capacities to really counter-argue, like, oh, I don't like Heinz, or um, I think Heinz is too expensive, or I usually have a different brand of ketchup. Um, so, you, you, yeah, you do not have the capacities to do that. So that's why you can still be more positive about this, about this brand. Thanks again to my guest, Claire Sahine, Assistant Professor of Advertising in the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communications. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. It's Thursday night, and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Started off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody, squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed... could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. With the NCAA Men's Basketball Final Four approaching from Minneapolis and U.S. Bank Stadium, there are also behind-the-scenes preparations for another type of March Madness, which will be happening at the Viking Stadium exactly a year from now. The 2020 NCAA Wrestling Championships will, for the first time ever, be held in a large stadium venue. Tickets went on sale this week, and organizers are hoping to smash attendance records. A small contingent of U of M officials are in Pittsburgh this week watching this year's National Wrestling Meet in order to have an understanding of what might happen next year. MN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with Golden Gopher Assistant Athletic Director Tom McGinnis before he left for Pittsburgh this week to preview next year's big event. Well, Tom, let's start before we look ahead to next year. Um, let's start and find out what kind of things you're hoping to find out in Pittsburgh while you're watching this year's uh, National Wrestling Tournament. Well, first and foremost, excited to see our eight wrestlers will be competing there. Uh, I know those young men have worked hard and had a great showing at the Big Ten Championship a couple weeks ago in Williams Arena, so excited to watch them for a couple days and compete for a championship. Um, but, you know, I think we've got a team, some folks from U.S. Bank Stadium, some folks from uh, Sports Minneapolis, and then those uh, from the U. Going to go down, and again, we've gone the last couple years and just want to make sure we're learning all the ins and outs of this championship. It's an event that hasn't been hosted in our community in quite a while, um, so we want to make sure we're learning, learning all the intricacies of the events. We know it's very unique. You've got over 300 student-athletes there, hundreds of coaches, uh, and a very passionate fan base. Um, so we want to make sure we're doing everything to make sure we're prepared to provide them an incredible experience when they come to Minneapolis next year. 
And next year it will be a unique experience in that it will be in the football stadium, U.S. Bank Stadium. These have traditionally been in basketball venues or basically arenas, uh, hockey venues as well. But um, uh, it's a little unique. I think maybe the Unidome in Cedar Falls is the only place that's been a football field that has hosted this. But this is twice or five times as big as that facility. What kind of unique aspects uh, uh, are you looking forward to, uh, to, to one, as a challenge, but two, as to uh, what, what kind of cool things can, can maybe come about with with it being in this stadium? You know, I think one of the things that stood out to me first was uh, when you look at the student-athlete and coach experience in these arenas, everything's really cramped. And we talked about the number of participants that are there, and they're kind of all down under the bowels of the building. Um, we're really excited about the amount of space that U.S. Bank State provides us. We'll be able to have wrestlers actually out on the field a little bit, hopefully queued up for their matches, being able to watch other matches, huge video boards in that venue where they can really see the action that's going on. Uh, so we're hoping that really adds to the student-athlete experience. Um, and then on the fan side, you know, uh, you know, a couple thousand tickets go on sale every year. They get snapped up just like that. And you pretty much have the same fans going to this event year after year. So one of the, you know, uh, points of emphasis for the NCAA was trying to diversify their audience, provide this championship to more fans. Well, we provided them plenty of seats. So we've gone through some different iterations of kind of the capacity that we're looking at. Uh, we've kind of landed on something where uh, we'll kind of have all the mats in the middle of the field, be able to sell it all the way around. Obviously, there'll be different vantage points, but a lot of great seats in U.S. Bank Stadium. So we're hoping this provides a unique experience, getting more fans in the venue, experiencing this championship, but also really enhancing the experience the student-athletes will have as well. I would guess if all goes well, you're going to shatter any kind of wrestling attendance record, I would think, right? We're hoping. Uh, you know, I know a couple years ago, Iowa did an event in their football stadium prior to a football game, so they had a really decent crowd there. So, um, you know, not that we're out to break a record, but, you know, if it, it comes along with it, you know, there's so many passionate wrestling fans in this part of the country, Minnesota, Iowa, Ohio, that will be able to hopefully come to this event. Uh, so we're really excited to be able to kind of put our best foot forward for all of them. Take us all the way back. When did this idea get sparked, and uh, was it a tough sell to say, hey, uh, let's move out of the arena and uh, give it a shot in a football stadium? You know, a couple years ago when we were doing bids for a number of championships, we've certainly looked at wrestling because, again, it's an event we know we have a passionate fan base for and can be successful with. Um, and we started looking at some of our great partners in town with arenas, and we, you know, there were some unique things that were making maybe not a great fit there. Um and then talking with the NCAA about their desire to have some more capacity from seating, we said, well, we have an idea for you. <laughs> so they actually, some of the committee members and their staff came out. We kind of walked them through the venue so they could kind of see what it would be like, um, knowing that obviously, you know, there's some more expense associated with this size venue, but also some potential for some additional revenue. So those would offset each other. Um, so we kind of got them excited about the opportunity. It's certainly going to be, you know, they'll try it once. I think they'll go back to some arenas, and obviously the success hopefully that we'll have could potentially lead to more of these in the future. So there could be a, a little bit of a guinea pig aspect to this too for you guys, right? I mean, there'll be some eyeballs on you to see, is this something other indoor football stadiums might want to try to do? Well, I would think, you know, if I'm in Detroit or some of the Indianapolis, some of the other venues that are within the Midwest footprint where wrestling is so big, um, Certainly, it would be a, if something that we can be successful with. Hopefully, they can duplicate and do in other venues as well. Well, it's a year away. Uh, what kind of things between now and a year from now uh, do you kind of uh, logistically have to now start uh, winding now? Because time flies. I can't believe the Final Four for basketball is here. It seemed like 10 years ago we started talking about it. So you're down to the final 12 months. What kind of things have to happen now from a logistical standpoint? I think it's really working with, again, our partners at Sports Minneapolis and U.S. Bank Stadium to work on. You know, We have to find a spot for our fan fest that will happen when they're 
town working with the stadium. It'll be a new type of event for them as well. Um, and how the logistics will work, how we'll do the physical setup, certainly working with the NCAA on selling tickets and promoting that throughout over the next year. So it's going to be a lot of fun. All right, very good. Again, uh, to get tickets, it's the NCAA webpage. And it looks like uh, we're down to the final 12 months of this. Uh, best of luck the rest of the way. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. That's MN Sports Director Mike Grimm and Gopher Assistant Athletic Director Tom McGinnis. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.